I thought I was going to be starting a series in the, in the book of Job today, but I've been learning recently, like at the WEC missions conference, that, that sometimes uh, um, a, a man makes his plans, but the Lord directs his steps, right? That's what Proverbs says, and that certainly has been the case. And uh, that's, that's the case this morning. I was, I was reminded of, of a particular passage, a chapter in Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, that when I was asked the question, I thought, oh, that's a great question. This is a passage we ought to turn to, especially when we've been talking about um, when God builds. And when God builds his temples, the tabernacle and Solomon's temple, and buying the hill, David said he would not offer an offering but to the Lord his God, which cost him nothing. That to build that which God would have us to build is going to cost us something. And there's probably a subtle connection to the fact that we as a church are faced with a building challenge. And we're moving forward in that together. And so, yes, God calls us to build for the future ministry that will be here even after us or beyond us. But as I've been thinking about that and the reality of the sacrifice involved if, if we're going to build, that, well, it kind of seems like a good time to roll out Matthew, or rather Malachi chapter 3. And you'll find out as we go. But Malachi... Chapter 3 asks the question, will man rob God? And it has to do with what they give or they don't give. The kind of offerings that they bring versus the kind of offerings that they should bring. That which God has instructed them out of his law. And yet I think that's, that's the question that's posed in the chapter. But I want to reframe that a little bit. I want to instead ask the question this morning. Because I think it's, it's implied that, yes, man will rob God. Man, we will withhold from God his due. But what if we reframe the question the other way? Maybe the problem is we're thinking about God wrongly. Will God rob man? Will God cheat you? That's the question I want to put before us this morning. I want, I, I want to read from Malachi chapter 3. I invite you to follow along with me. You'll find us in the Church Bibles in page 802, 802, if you want to use the Church Bible to read the same version as I read. And let's stand together as we read God's Word. Malachi chapter 3, and beginning in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. For the days of your fathers... From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, well, how shall we return? Will, and this is God's answer, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and therefore put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. 
Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Father, would you show us from your word, Lord, what you'd have us to do? How do what is it that we can learn? First of all, what can we learn about you from this interaction that you, you have had with your people Israel? Lord, open your word up to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Go ahead and take your seats. I was intrigued by this passage. Somebody, somebody it's, it's been suggested, you've probably heard this before, that there's, there's one place in the Bible where God encourages us to test him. There's one place where we can put God to the test, and that is in giving. And here it is, right here in Malachi 3. And, you know, we're, we're having a... Having a uh, a, a capital campaign. We're, we're, we're gathering the resources needed. We still need a little more so we have enough to, to, to start as soon as the permitting is accomplished. And we, we, we're, we still have about a third of the way to go to have all the funds needed to complete the building. So seems like a good time to roll out Malachi chapter 3. I want to say Matthew, but Malachi chapter 3. It's a good time to roll this passage out, isn't it? Well, but what does this actually say to us? Because it says, shall we test God this way? Do we give in order to get blessings poured down? That, that, that warns us a little bit. There's something, there's an alarm going off somewhere because that kind of sounds like a prosperity type teaching, to give in order to get. Something not quite right with that. And if, we, if we're told here, if, we, if this passage seems to promise, if you put God to the test by giving your tithe of 10%, perhaps offerings beyond that, that God will pass your testing of him by opening up the windows of heaven and pouring out his blessings upon you. But wait, our Lord said, when he was tested by the devil, he said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test Satan says, go ahead, do this. Um, um, prove it that God will rescue you, that he will not allow any harm come to you, that he will keep you in all your ways. And Jesus' reply to that is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, what's going on here then? Are we to test God in our giving that the, indeed the windows of heaven would open and he would pour out his blessings upon us? It sounds good, doesn't it? But wait, what exactly does it mean to open the windows of heaven? Well, I remember a time when the windows of heaven opened. It seemed like the windows of heaven opened as, the, as also the floods of the deep and the earth was flooded. Okay. There's a time, there's another passage in Isaiah 68 that talks about, the only place I could find where it talked about heaven pouring down, Isaiah 68 and verse 8, it says, The earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel, poured down rain in abundance, and in so doing, God, you restored your inheritance. So it would seem that the immediate promise of Malachi 3 seems to be if you give your tithe, as the law describes, then you're going to get lots of rain. Okay, who's in? Not exactly the promise you were hoping for, is it? 
Give your offering and get lots of rain, especially not this time of year. In fact, if you think about it, Seattle, Portland, they get lots of rain. But they might not be the best examples of cities that are walking in fear of the Lord and keeping his commandments. And yet the windows of heaven seem to open. And they pour down rain in abundance upon these places. So what's going on here? What do we do with Malachi chapter 3? Because it's got to be true. This is God's word. We need to consider the context. That, that there's this mention of, of rain is lacking. It's limiting their crops. There's a devourer of fruits of your soil. Perhaps that's locusts. Their fields are failing to bear. All of these descriptions of, of, of drought and pestilence and a lack of, of fruitfulness, these are all descriptions of the discipline that would come from God upon his people if they did not keep his covenant with them. God redeemed Israel out of Egypt. In the Old Testament, let me give you, let me teach you the Old Testament about three sentences. The, the first five books are the foundational story of God's redeeming a people, giving them a new life with him out of Egypt to live in covenant with God. And they come to Mount Sinai, they're given the law, and they have this covenant. Now, the historical books moving forward from there are the unfolding of how do God's people do living in God's covenant. In the, in, in the book of Joshua, not too bad. In the book of Judges, not so good at all. And it continues from there. And the prophets then finally... The, prophet, the prophetic books are God through his messengers calling his people back to that covenant that he gave them at Mount Sinai. Back to the law that he gave them to instruct them of how to walk with him. Now the law is a wonderful revelation of the character of God. The law is holy and just and good. It shows us what God is like. But the law was not given to the world. The law was given to Israel that Israel might know how they walk in relationship with him, okay? And he told them at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, after a rehearsing of the law, much of what's in Deuteronomy is a, is a, is a rehearsing again to the generation about to go into that land, a rehearsing of what he had told them in Exodus and in the book of, and, and, and in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Numbers. So it's rehearsed again for them. And then at the end, they're, they're reminded of the blessings that are going to be theirs in this good land, this inheritance that they have been given just across the Jordan. But they're also warned that if they don't walk in his ways, he's going to get their attention. He's going to, first of all, withhold rain. He will, he will send pestilence or plague among them. They might be invaded by enemies and they won't be given the victory over them, but they'll run from them instead. And worst case scenario, if they continue to resist his correction, ultimately they will be removed from the land. They'll be taken away into exile. And all of that happens. And then they're restored. And these last few prophetic books, including Malachi, are when God's people have been restored out of Babylon, out of exile, back into the land again. I'm sorry, that was more than a few sentences for all the Old Testament. But there you have it in a nutshell. Now... 
We need to understand what he's saying about the conditions they're having in Malachi chapter 3 and why the opening the windows of heaven and the pouring down of God's blessings for the benefit of their crops, how that fits in the story. Because they have not been walking with God. And these characteristics, they're all described in Deuteronomy 28. I'll, I'll, I'll read just a few of them, beginning of verse 15. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God according to these commandments, verse 20, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration. What is it going to look like? The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until you, he has consumed you. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and fever and with drought and with blight and mildew. Your enemies will pursue you until you perish. The heavens over your head will be like bronze, and the earth under you shall be like iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust will come down. He's going to get their attention. That's what he tells them in Deuteronomy 28. And now they have been in captivity. They have returned by God's gracious hand, and yet they're beginning to wander again in their own ways. And just as before, God is telling them that he's getting their attention because they have not been walking with him. They have not kept his covenant that was given in the law at Mount Sinai to Israel. When they fear God and walk in his ways, they would live in a land of delight, which is a reference to Isaiah 62, a land no longer forsaken or desolate. But Israel... God's people, whom he has redeemed and brought to himself so that he might show what he is like and his faithfulness and his holiness, his uniqueness to all the peoples of all the earth, Israel is now restored from captivity. They're awaiting their Messiah, David's promised son, and yet they're again wandering away. I don't point this out to be harsh or judgmental against Israel. Actually, it reinforces the reality that Israel cannot fulfill the old covenant. You know how chapter 3 starts out? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist, who prepares the way before. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But he says, who can stand his coming? Israel cannot stand Messiah's coming. And they don't. They are not ready for him. They are a sinful and rebellious people still. They cannot fulfill, they cannot keep the covenant that God gave him, and that's the point of the book of Malachi as a whole. This is how Malachi describes his people Israel. They offer subpar sacrifices. They've considered God's call to worship a wearisome thing. Oh, we've got to go again. They've not feared God. They're lifting up their own teachings and traditions over God's word and his commands. They have been unfaithful in their vows to God and to their vows to their own wives. They have said God isn't really concerned about how we live or what we do. Those who, are, who do evil do just as well. In fact, they seem to be prospering. God doesn't seem to care. They listen to sorcerers. They lie. They cheat their workmen of their wages. They take advantage of the powerless in society like widows and refugees. Fathers neglect their children. Children neglect their elderly parents. Life in Israel at the time of Malachi is too much like life in any other nation, then or now. 
They, need, they cannot keep God's Old Covenant, God's Old Testament covenant. They cannot keep this covenant of law from Sinai. They are not able to do it. They will not be faithful to it. They need a new covenant, which God has promised through the prophet Jeremiah, through the prophet Ezekiel. God promised a new covenant, a new covenant where God will put his will within their heart. And he will give them new life by his spirit which will dwell within them. That's the difference of the new covenant versus the old covenant. Think Old Testament and New Testament. Christ comes, dies for us to redeem us. And by his blood of the new covenant given for you for the forgiveness of your sin. That's what's at play here. Malachi is the end of the old covenant and Israel's inability to keep it. A covenant that was only made with Israel, not with all the world. The Canaanites were never expected to keep the law of Moses. It wasn't given to them. It was given to Israel. And yet they did not keep it. In the book of Judges, they lived like the Canaanites. What do we do with this? Yes, Israel has robbed God in withholding the worship he is due. Because they are thinking wrongly of God. Look at verse 13 of Malachi 3. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? They didn't realize God was listening in. You see, they're not thinking rightly of God. You have said it is vain to serve God. What profit of our keeping his charge or his commandments or walking as if we were in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant, those who ignore God, we call them blessed. Evildoers prosper, even though they put God to the test and escape. Hmm. But there are some within Israel, even then, as now, there's a remnant who believe God. Look at verse 16. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. They encouraged one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves the God and one who does not serve him. That'll be fulfilled when Messiah comes and purifies his people. He will do that through this new covenant. A new covenant that he will make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's described, as I said, in Jeremiah chapter, well, Jeremiah 31, 33, Ezekiel as well, but I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 8. I'm laying a lot of groundwork, and then we're going to see how this relates to us. It's all Israel. You're safe so far. Haven't stepped on anybody's toes yet. Hebrews chapter 8, Christ Jesus has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, the ministry of the old covenant, the ministry of the Old Testament, the the priesthood of Levi, for instance. It's it's better because it, as, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant... Moses, the law, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But don't mishear me. There's nothing wrong with the law. 
The law is not weak. The law does not have a fault. The law, Paul says, is holy and just and good. The problem is we're not able to keep it. Look at verse 8 of Hebrews 8. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. There, the old covenant is Sinai, but this is going to be different than that. They did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds. I will write my law upon their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They'll not teach one another his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant is essentially this, the forgiveness of our sins, not by our obedience, but because of what God does for us in Jesus, dying in our place, dying as the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that new covenant is because of that forgiveness and removal of our sin and our guilt that we are in a right relationship with God so that the Spirit of God is able and free and dwells with us. In us, God by His Spirit works His will into our hearts so that we are not trying to outwardly conform to the requirements of commandments, but from our inner being, the law of God written on our hearts, energized by the Spirit of God within us, we seek to do His will. That's how Hebrews describes Jesus. Behold, I have come to do your will, O Lord. Jesus himself, in one of his final prayers, not my will, but thy will be done. And that's the essence of the new covenant. You see, we don't live by law under the old covenant of the Old Testament. We live under a new covenant, a whole new enablement. There's an old hymn that puts it well. Run, run, and do, the law commands, but it gives me neither feet nor hands. A better thing the gospel brings It bids me, invites me to fly, and it gives me wings. God, by His Spirit within us, not only invites us not merely to to do, but to fly. To be what we could never be for ourselves. And not only that, but He gives us the enablement by His Spirit to do it. He changes us. He transforms us. That's the glory of this new covenant that God is at work in among his people, those who believe in him. How does all that relate to you? We talked a lot about Israel. When do I get to step on your toes? It was my prayer. I mentioned the first service. I hope that each one of you leave with just a few gentle scuffs on the top of your shoes this morning. I do want to step on your toes just gently, but to tread there. How does this relate to us? We are not commanded in the book of Malachi to fulfill the law of a tithe any more than we are commanded to try of our own to keep the rest of Leviticus or Deuteronomy. But you say, wait, 
the practice of a tithe, the giving of a tenth, that's not merely the law. That, that, that happens before the law. Abraham brought a tithe in worship, in thankfulness to the Lord for how God had delivered him. Yes, he did. Yeah, the practice of a tithe, the practice, in fact, of all the righteous character of God precedes the law. The law simply describes it and tells his people specifically, walk in these ways. But the, but the character of God hasn't changed. So certainly there's, a, there's this, this uh, model that we could go back to Abraham, the father of faith, and we could say, okay, there's a tithe there, so how does that work? We don't ignore the way of living that's described by the law, but we live it differently. We live it in a new and better way. That's the new covenant, a new and better way, a way that where God enables us. A way that God works within us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The old covenant is obsolete, passing away, made obsolete by a new covenant, the Spirit of God within us, God working his will within us. What we learn from Malachi 3 is that Israel was unfaithful in the old covenant. And just as God's people, here's how you then take, okay, this is specific, this is all about Israel here. What do we do with that? Oh, we do something with that. It's, it's true. This is God's truth. God's Israel is unfaithful to God in his covenant relationship with them. Let's, let's, let's make that more general now. Let's leave Israel out of it. God's people can be unfaithful to the covenant God has made with them. Let's take that generalized statement now. Let's pull that down into the, into the church, Christians, believers today. We as believers in Jesus today can be unfaithful to all that God has given us and calls us to as sharers in his new covenant. The principle is the same. God's people can be, unf can, can be unfaithful to his covenant with us. And our unfaithfulness is not a failure to do the list of what was required. Our unfaithfulness is a, is a failure to yield to God working in us to do what is pleasing to Him. But our resisting of that, our withholding. You see, we have been joined with Jesus for his life to be lived in us. We have been made part of the body of Christ. And that's not just an altogether kind of expression. And each of us a little bit different. Altogether we form a body like some are arms, some are hands, some are legs. No, we are Christ's body in that his life is lived through. You live your life through your body. You, you can't even... even Imagine what it would be to live life outside of your body. You live and experience things. Your, your senses even perceive and receive and understand things through your body. We are the body of Christ, and the life of Christ is lived through us. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. His death became my death. He died for me. I am crucified with Christ, yet I'm not dead. I live. But it's not I who live, but Christ lives in me. And this life, write that verse down, Galatians 2.20. I want you to look at it later. This life which I now live in the flesh, in this mortal weak body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christ lives in me. 
The essence of the Christian life is not keeping a list. It's not a modification of behavior. The essence of the Christian life is the life of Christ lived in my life. Christ liveth in me. Okay? Well, what would that look like? If the life of Christ is being lived in me, what does that look like? What in the course of my daily experiences could be described as, that looks like Jesus. That looks like Jesus' life. What in the course of my experiences day to day would that look like? I can tell you it will involve hardship. I can tell you it will be involve suffering. Because if we are going to follow him, that's the way that Jesus goes. Jesus goes in the way of suffering for the sake and the benefit of others. Jesus goes the way of sacrificing for the sake and the lifting up of others. That's what it's going to look like. He says, if we're going to follow him, we're going to deny ourselves. We're going to take up a cross. Colossians 1.24 puts it very well. I love this verse. It's an obscure verse. It's easily overlooked. But it's one of my favorite in the book of Colossians. Colossians 1.24, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, for your benefit. And in my flesh, in this body, I am willing, I am filling up what is still needed in the Christ-like or Christ kind of afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, Paul is not saying that Jesus' suffering for us on the cross was not quite enough. What, G- what Paul is saying is that in the same way that Jesus suffered for the sake of others and their benefit, he calls those who follow him to do the same. To give over. Every parent knows this. Every parent does things that, that are a loss for them for the sake of the one that they love. And that's what we're to carry out more broadly than merely our own flesh and blood, our own children, but to give ourselves for the sake of others, sometimes for people that we don't even know. We're called to sacrifice, to to fill up in our own bodies what is still needed of Christ-like suffering for the sake of others. Now, what does that look like? Since Malachi 3 used giving as an example, would it be okay if I went back there? You say, no, 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 don't go there. Go anywhere else. No, no, I'll go there. What does that look like then? What would new covenant giving look like as compared to Malachi 3 giving? I think the best place you could turn is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians, yes, that Corinthian church. Paul, this, this very messed up church, Paul gives them a wonderful example of what the life of Christ looks like in terms of giving. He mentions these other believers just a little north of them. He says, I want you, brothers, and, I, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Their poverty in joy has overflowed in generosity. For they gave according to their means, maybe that means a tithe, 
each one according to his means, each one 10%, I don't know, as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord, not because somebody told them to, told them that they ought to. They said, in fact, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in this relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, not because we had some expectation upon them, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God they gave themselves to us. God working in them, causing them to give in ways that Paul himself did not expect. And sometimes when you read Paul, it seems like Paul could expect an awful lot. But they surprised him. What God would do through those that, as far, that, that, that they didn't really have the means. This was sacrificial. This was giving, this is, this was giving in ways that were going to cost them. And yet, Paul uses them as an example. They gave themselves to God, and then by the will of God to us. And he ties that in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might be made risk. There's a parallel also in the same section, this 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, a great way to go for Christian giving. It's, it's a, a new covenant giving. There's a parallel also to the promise in Malachi 3, if you will trust me and give in the ways that I call you to in my covenant, I will abundantly bless you. That's the general principle. If Israel will give the tithes and offerings that are required under the law, God will bless them. If God's people will give according to the means of the covenant with God, he will bless them. If we then, as partakers of this new covenant, if we give to God according to this new covenant, would we expect blessing? Something other than rain? What would that blessing look like? It might not be what you promised on TV. It might not be you give a little bit, you plant that seed, and God is going to grow up in abundant blessing, and money's going to pour out of all kinds of unexpected places and bless you. Well, maybe it will. But maybe it will be like my Zimbabwe dollars. Is there something that God would bless us with in faithfulness under this new covenant that is even better. I think it's described in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. It's kind of echoing back to the Old Testament principle there. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Big sowing, big harvest, big return. That sounds like a good investment. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good works. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, will increase the harvest of your righteousness. 
You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. God will grow you. When we part participate in any kind of sacrificial giving of ourselves away, and that could be our time, that could be our talents and abilities, that could be our treasures. When we will give of ourselves away in a way that costs us something, that's where God is growing Christ in us. I can say that with all confidence because that's what Jesus looks like. What Jesus looks like is giving himself away for the sake of others. Jesus is the embodiment of God's love and grace and mercy toward others. And that's what God calls us into, to live that life of Christ. And he's working that likeness in us. 2 Corinthians, again, chapter 3 and verse 18. We all, with unveiled faces, and that's a, that's a throwback to Moses again. There's a contrast happening again. We, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the same likeness, from one degree of glory to another, this coming from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is what God is doing. We're not doing it. But God is working in us. What Paul's telling the Corinthians here is what he tells the Philippians later. He, God, who began a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it. God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good purpose. And his purpose is to make you and I more and more like Jesus. And that's going to cost you. It's going to cost me. And it will be worth it all when we are with him. It might not seem like it's worth much at all here and now. But like those shekels I'm saving for my next trip to Israel it will be worth far more in his presence where nothing else will matter much at all. This is the work that God has begun in you that he is faithful to do. When you yield to the will of God by his spirit according to his word, it's not to receive back blessings in success or circumstance, but to be made a little more like Jesus this life and its opportunities, that which we are stewards of today, they are given to us as God's workshop for eternity. This is the place, the only time where we have the opportunity to make sacrifices by faith because we believe and trust God for what we have not yet seen. You know, all through eternity, we will not walk by faith. We will walk by sight. We will see Him as He is. But now, we believe Him, not yet seen. But we believe him, and because we do, we give ourselves away for him. And he uses that to grow us. Here is the only time when we have the privilege to walk by faith, where we give our time, our talent, our treasure, because we believe that what God has said of our glory and our eternal inheritance in Jesus is true. I just came back from that missionary conference with WEC, and I hope maybe next week or, or sometime after that we'll, be, we'll get a chance once, once um, all who went on that team and the Ray of Hope team are back, we'll get a chance to, to share some of that with you as a church. But it's, but it's fitting that I would close with a missionary quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain 
what he cannot lose. And with God, God will not rob man. With God, you cannot lose. There's a couple of verses I want us to close with. I've asked them to put them up on the screen for us. We can read them together. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. Go ahead and read that with me. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God will not rob man. Romans 8.32, will God rob man? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously, freely give us all things? And 1 Peter chapter 1, from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. An inheritance preserved in heaven for you who are being preserved by God for a salvation that is ready to be revealed. How long, O Lord, We don't know, but not long. And I can promise you, until then, God will be faithful. God will not rob man. I'm not so worried about us withholding what we have from him. I'm worried about us withholding ourselves from him. Let's pray. Father, We come before you today asking that you would search our hearts. Is there a place where we are holding back our own way instead of your way? We are reserving for ourselves what we think will be better because we're not trusting you concerning what you have promised for us. Lord, guard us against the tendency to hedge our bets, to diversify our eternal investing, but rather to give ourselves to you, the one who loves us most, the one whom we can most of all trust ourselves to. Lord, that we would give ourselves in whatever way you would call us to do, that we would yield ourselves to you by the working of your Spirit within us. Indeed, God, we ask, finish that good work 
that you are doing in us. Transform us, change us all the more into the likeness of Jesus. Father, would you work at our will that we would not withhold, but we would give ourselves completely, freely to you in whatever way that means. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.